The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. In the last episode of Noggins and Neurons, Pete and I talked about tissue plasminogen activator, or TPA. We talked about what it is and how it works, when it's used, and when it's not used, We also reviewed stroke symptoms and talked about the importance of time in getting treatment. We talked about adverse effects of TPA and early mobility from the therapy side, the safety of early mobility after a person receives TPA. If you can't feel it, it's harder to integrate it into anything that you do, and so you don't do it as much, and so you add to learn non-use. Yeah, and think about that with a person who also has neglect. If they don't know that they have that side and they don't feel that side, there's no reminder that that side is there. So it impacts body awareness. Absolutely. But let me ask you this as a clinician, and I'll try to get my head around this as well. If you think that sensation is recoverable, do you think it's worth putting some of your valuable clinical time, your limited amount of time with that patient, focused specifically on sensation recovery? I think it would be worth it because if sensation and movement are linked, together it's important and for all the reasons that we just talked about the things that can go wrong improving sensation can increase safety can increase independence quality of life yes i think we should be working on that spent so much time researching this week that i i don't want to research anymore for a little bit (laughs) just for a little bit researchitis Research the lockdown syndrome. It is just one more. Just one more. Just one more thing. What I do? I'll just one more. Just one more article. I'll just look for one more. Next thing I know, it's ours. Okay, Miss Deb Badistella, how you doing? Pete Levine, I am great. 
How are you after your big night of drinking? I had a big night of drinking, as you know. Yeah. I'm never telling you another family secret again, Deb. And let well, Pete, listen. I think that kids this generation are different even than the ones from my older two. Because my youngest invited me out for a drink on his 21st birthday. Whereas the other two really didn't want to have anything to do with me when they turned 21. Interesting. Okay, so first of all, uh, just so everybody knows what we're talking about, my daughter, Emma, turned 21 yesterday, and she invited uh, the family out to a beer garden where she promptly made us pay for everything, which of course is her birthday, so of course that's going to happen. And uh, dad got a little bit tipsy, and so mom had to drive home, and that was fun. And then my daughter made me go, she wanted to go out and party after that, so we dropped her off downtown. And then um, she made me come down and pick her up because she was she was celebrating her 21st birthday as she well should have and the way she should have and she was not able to drive. So I went down at 1.30 in the morning after I had slept and eaten and drank a lot of water and I was good to drive and I had to go pick her up. So And she was a smart 21-year-old drinking. She was. I mean, That's she awesome. didn't want to drive and she didn't want to Uber because it's too expensive. So called dad. Exactly. That's what you're here for. And it only took me one beer to like be pretty much fallen over. So I was over my little problems pretty quickly, but I'm not hungover now. <laughs> it's good to know. I'll tell you what, though. It was what? nice to see people out. We were outside, but nobody had masks on. Yeah. And people were, you know, talking to each other. It was amazing. A whole, whole new non-COVID world out there. Yeah, it is nice. I went out for lunch with a friend today and it was like normal normal times again it was nice it was like back in early 2020 remember that i have a vague memory okay well maybe we should oh. get down to business so ready talk about now now we're going to talk about sensation recovery and i'm glad that we're going to talk about that pete because in my free time i like to pick up your book which we haven't Sorry talked about that. in a while so we haven't we haven't talked about your book in a while stronger after stroke you know, a great it's, book. It's at the beginning of every episode I talk about it with the, and I'm the author <laughs> of Stronger After Stroke, that whole bit. So, what well, we haven't had the real conversation. That's, okay. So, does yeah. it say something interesting about, um, about sensation recovery? It says two things that I think are really interesting. So, the first one, I know, right? The first one says when sensation improves, movement usually improves. We kind of already talk about that a lot. But it's the next bullet point. When movement is improved, sensation often recovers. I don't think I've ever really thought about that. Not sure why I haven't thought about that, but I think it's important topic. Does an important sense? point. You think it makes Absolutely sense? it makes sense. If you think about how brain recovery occurs and just how neuroplasticity is in general, if you're moving, then it's going to What's the word I want? Activate. Yes. Thank you. Activate all of the sensation mechanisms in the body. So they're neuroplastic as much as movement is neuroplastic. Why wouldn't it be? No, I agree. I'm just uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, why have I never thought about this before? <laughs> and so that, that means that repetitive practice of movement also trains proprioception and and maybe tactile stuff if you're touching stuff. Yeah, why wouldn't it? Like I know I've heard um I've heard people talk about dancers and how proprioceptive areas in their brain are, are just there are a lot of them. 
that light up compared to those of us who are not dancers. Not that I don't dance. I do. But yeah. Wait, what? You dance? <laughs> Wait, it's when you're not ziplining and when I'm not ziplining motorcycles. Yeah. What kind like of dance are you into? I really love swing dancing. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. That's it's the so most complicated of all the dancing. No, it's not. Isn't that the one like is it's is it done to like 50s music or yeah. late 40s early 50s and and yeah. you twirl the person around and they, they jump on each other's backs and stuff? Yeah, I don't do any of that jumping on backs or like sliding through legs, but it's really not that complicated. Wow, I'm impressed. That's fun. You bring up a good point though. So, there will be a hypertrophy in the motor and sensory cortices. And of course, that's all I ever talk about are, is the homunculus, the point-to-point representation of the brain onto the body for movement and the body onto the brain for sensation. Those two strips that run about from the crest of your ear to the crest of your brain and then dive down between the two hemispheres. They're about the size of your index finger and long finger put together as sort of a helmet over your head. Those are the strips we're talking about right in the middle of your head. Of course, we don't talk about the cerebellum and all the other ancillary parts of the brain that are involved and would also be neuroplastic if you were to move. So in athletes and in musicians uh, for at least part of their body, if you're a string player, it's only going to be probably more the non-dominant side. But athletes, musicians, dancers, yogis, martial artists, all these people have a hypertrophy of these portions of the brain. And I think I've made this point before because I've always thought that really good athletes are incredibly intelligent. They're just not intelligent in a way that we value very much in the society unless they make a million dollars because they're a professional. And then we complain that they're making too much money. So yeah, and and this may be why it is that a hedge against one of the many hedges against Alzheimer's, dementia, just losing synaptic connections is staying in good physical shape. I can only think of things that are as good as swing dancing at developing the motor and sensory cortex for a good long life. Maybe martial artists and maybe gymnastics, although that's tough to do as you get older. But dance is like a really cool social thing. And it's, yeah. Yeah. And you can't be, you can't be sad and dance. Is that true? I think so. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. You know, if you're an awkward white guy like me, I think you can be sad. Well, you can be pretty sad when you're dancing. You're like, I'm just an awkward white guy. Well, when you're taking the dancing lessons and you're in a big circle and everybody's learning at the same time and there's a lot of fumbling around, there's also a lot of laughter. Yeah, dance. Who knew? Yeah, exactly. Well, we should probably get back to what we're supposed to talk about here because, you know, well, these isn't this part of it? Expects information. Okay. So uh, they're so needy. They are so needy. Yeah. So um, w- wait, what was your point again? It My was point that, is yeah. that we always talk about when sensation improves, movement improves, but we don't think of the flip side, which is what you brought up in your book. When movement is improved, sensation often recovers. So this speaks to a lot of the repetitive practice paradigms that we've talked about a lot, including constraint-induced therapy. And you would expect, it's almost, we don't measure it enough. That's one of the points I want to make today. You know, clinicians don't measure sensation. And there's a bunch of different reasons that the focus is on movement and not on sensation. But understand, if you're doing repetitive practice, you're going to be training both. So when you talk about measuring sensation, are you talking about that proprioceptive test that we talked about in the very beginning episode? Are you talking about like light touch, deep pressure, sharp dull, those things? Well, 
I want to go through all of those. Okay. But can we do so, just a little bit of background before that? So one of the things that's a problem is that research into sensation is way behind research for movement. Why? Well, because you can bill and you can keep people on caseload for recovery of movement, but try doing that for sensation. Well, we're just going to work on his sensory recovery, on his proprioception recovery, you know. And then, of course, we're back to that original question, how do you measure it? And how do you convince payers that they should be kept on caseload? And here's the measurement we did. And, you know. Well, I think the convincing payers is turning into a, a different type of conversation the more time goes by, because it just seems like payers don't understand how recovery occurs or don't want to understand. And so that convincing is getting more and more difficult. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. There is a belief that recovery of movement is more important than recovery of sensation. Recovery of movement is what everybody wants. So that's the second point that I wanted to bring up. Oh, okay. That one right there. Keep going. We all want recovery of sensation, but our focus generally as clinicians and as survivors is on recovery of movement. It's the yin to the other's yang. Movement without proprioception, without sensation, and it's uncoordinated. And yet sensation without movement, you know, it's better than nothing, but you can't move it. So or you don't move it well. So they go together. Um, Recovery of movement is easy to see. It's easy to measure. Um, Recovery of sensation, impossible to observe, difficult to measure. You can see if somebody's moving better, but how do you tell if they're feeling the movement better? So do we ever use a self-report scale on this? Obviously, I haven't, or I wouldn't be asking the question. There is an outcome measure I'm going to suggest. Honestly, I've never used it before, but it seems to be the standard for measuring this stuff. It's called the Nottingham Sensory Assessment. It's going to be in the show notes and it does light touch and proprioception, but I'm also going to sort of suggest other things that you can do to to measure sensation and proprioception over time. Now, we should focus on sensation recovery because it does impair the ability to explore the environment, touch things. It affects, it negatively affects function. The worse sensation, the less function you're going to have. The ability to do everyday tasks or IADLs. Remind me what that means again? Instrumental. Instrumental. I'm never going to get it. I should think about like instrument because I play an instrument and Mm -hmm. maybe I should think of that as instrumental. There you go. Use one of those nice little uh, cognitive aids. Wait, are you calling me old? No. I'm like a month and a half older than you. It's a little trick. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have trouble uh, grasping objects because you don't know if you're going to crush it or you're going to break it or if you're going to drop it. So, you know, it's one thing if it's a plastic cup full of water, but what if it's red wine? You have a nice wine glass. You can cut your hand and end up in the hospital because you squeezed it too hard. Exactly. It's also a safety concern because if you can't feel hot, for example, you could burn yourself. Yeah. And if you can't feel your foot hitting the floor, you might fall over. Yeah, that too. And then all of that that you just mentioned decreases the chance of living independently, which decreases psychological well-being. And this is your thing is like the psychology of recovery. That's important. It is important. Quality of life, which I don't think it's talked about enough. Yeah. And how it impacts recovery. It does. Yeah. Here's another one. Um, If you can't feel stuff, it adds to learn non-use. Remember learn non-use, this idea that you take a portion of the brain that's coming back and you never use it. And it takes 
the small area of infarct and turns it into this huge footprint in the brain because all that stuff that's coming back is never used. It's learned non-use. And if you can't feel it, it's harder to integrate. It's harder to integrate it into anything that you do. And so you don't do it as much. And so you add to learn non-use. Yeah. And think about that with a person who also has neglect. They don't know that they have that side and they don't feel that side, there is no reminder that that side is there. So, it impacts body awareness. Absolutely. And all of that that you just mentioned leads to even more learn non-use. Sensation, here's an interesting stat, and I don't have the actual stat, so maybe I shouldn't call it a stat, but sensation loss also prolongs hospital stay. Go figure. Go figure. Here's an interesting fact. I thought I thought it was interesting. Decreased sensation correlates with age. So the older you are when the acquired brain injury hits you, the higher the chance of a loss of sensation. And remember, it's not just a loss. It can be a declination. It could be hyperesthesia, something you've talked about. Hyperalgesia, that's the abnormally increased sensitivity. Allodynia is the experience of pain from stimuli that isn't normally painful. Right. Like the wind on your hair. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it could be a combination of these sensation problems. You could feel too much, for instance, with shoulder hand syndrome. And then that cycles in the brain because everything we've, we've mentioned chronic regional pain syndrome after subluxation. We've talked about reflux sympathetic dystrophy and shoulder hand syndrome. And then that cycles in the brain and and Mm there it's too painful and it's too sensitive. Yeah. So the other thing, so it's age is an indicator If you have your acquired brain injury, when you're older, you have a higher chance of problems with sensation, smoking. And the other big indicator is if they lose sensation and it's lost within the first 24 hours after the brain injury, that's usually an indicator that it's not going to come back, that you're going to have ongoing sensory problems, not sensory problems, but sensation problems. So do you mean they don't initially lose sensation, but 24 hours after they start to lose it? Within that, if it's lost within that first 24 hours, so if it's lost after a longer period than that, your chances of recovering it are better, apparently. Okay, thank you. So if sensation goes away immediately, that's a bad prognosticator for sensation recovery long-term. So, okay, I lost my voice there for a minute. Um, That first sentence in your book, you say there is a belief that recovery of movement is more important than recovery of sensation. So the word belief kind of jumped off the page at me when I was reading that, because here we are talking about research, but we still have a lot of beliefs that drive what we do in therapy and the way that we do things. So that really, it spoke to me because I don't want to be driven by beliefs. I want to do what the research says. Yeah, that word belief is a tough word. We use it in so many different contexts. You can say, you know, I don't believe in global warming. Well, what does that mean? You right. know, it's not a belief issue. It's a, It should be a science issue. Exactly. But let me ask you this as a clinician, and I'll try to get my head around this as well. If you think that sensation is recoverable, do you think it's worth putting some of your valuable clinical time, your limited amount of time with that patient focused specifically on sensation recovery? I think it would be worth it because if sensation and movement are linked together, it's important. And for all the reasons that we just talked about, the things that can go wrong, improving sensation can increase safety, can increase independence, quality of life. Yes, I think we should be working on that. Yeah. And I'm going to suggest some things that you might be able to do on your own. As a survivor, 
or as a, if you're a caregiver of somebody, or if you're a therapist and you want to say, look, we can have you work on sensation when you're not in the clinical time. Uh, we'll do some of it here, but also I want you to do it back in your room or back at home. So more about that home program that we talked about so many times, right? It's another opportunity for us to help people help themselves. Absolutely. HEP, what does it stand for? Hand and photocopies. It's home exercise program, but I think you and I agree that it should be initiated very soon after you meet the person, not at the last second. Yes. And then it should have built-in step-ups where they either go back to the therapist and get a little bit, what do you like a tweaking dose of therapy or what do you call that? A booster, a booster of therapy so that they can then hit the next plateau and then the next plateau because yeah, during the subacute phase, they're going to make the most recovery. But those little plateaus that happen once they've plateaued and they're discharged, that could be 15% more. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but that could be the difference between laying in bed all day and going back to work or whatever they want to do. Yeah, it sure could be. That's another item that I wanted to bring up at some point, And this seems like a good time. Um, in your book, you talk about non-functional movement. And those are little advances that people can be making that will lead to, possibly lead to a functional outcome, like being able to put your own shirt on using that affected arm. So you're not talking about that specifically with regard to sensation. You're just talking about in a home exercise program. Well, it is related. To it is related to sensation because if, if your recovery is minor, it appears minor to you, but you have a series of minor recoveries and sensation is related to movement, then over time, that can lead to increased functional ability. Just another good reason to ignore the plateau for as long as you possibly can and keep working. Yeah. So most OTs and PTs report testing proprioception and light touch in survivors. And I'm going to give you a test. I've talked about it on this podcast before for, pro for proprioception at least. Um, but the reliability of some of these tests has been questioned because the tests are not particularly standardized and reliable. And then the other thing is they're comparing it to the good side, but is the good side normal? Because in clinical research, and a lot of clinicians do this as well, you, we don't talk about the in a stroke where it's clearly on one side of the brain. You don't talk about the affected and unaffected side. You talk about the affected and the less affected side. And we've talked about this in this podcast. The brain, this whole right, right brain, left brain, left hemisphere, right hemisphere, and they never talk to each other. They're always talking to each other. So if you lose one part of the brain, let's say in the right hemisphere, all the other parts in the left hemisphere that used to talk to that part in the right hemisphere, they start to lose synaptic connections, dendrites, they start to prune away. So is the quote unaffected side really unaffected in terms of sensation? And if that's what the therapist is comparing it to, they may get some false data there. So what are we supposed to do? We're going to do our best. <laughs> You know, we'll come up with some stuff that, that um, may help. But yeah, the sensory and motor cortices, we can expect them to expand and contract together. And we've seen this in constraint-induced therapy uh, programs where there's an expansion of the motor cortex, we'd expect that, but the sensory cortex also has more blood flow going to it during the fMRI. Sensation exists to guide movement. Recovery of sensation improves movement, so far as we can tell. And sensation follows the same recovery rules as movement repetitive and demanding. And so maybe- So when you say demanding- Yeah. So let's get into the treatment options. Okay. I actually found a really cool presentation 
done by uh, Nell Ledesma. It's from, she presented, I think, to the Michigan Occupational Therapy Association, but she works for Beaumont Health System. And it's a very detailed presentation. And I found it on the internet. So I'm pretty sure I can go ahead and put that in the show notes. Um, it has a lot of good research and um, kind of like what you were talking about, setting up the the reason why we need to work on sensation. And then there's there's some good information about the brain in here. She's got the sensory homunculus, which is a pretty cool picture. Um, yeah. And then she talks about some good interventions that we should be doing, which is a really long presentation. She talks about evaluating sensation. Same thing you said, there's no widely accepted or standardized test. Um, clinical descriptors that are commonly used, present, impaired, or absent. That's usually how we talk about that stuff. And then same things you talked about, touch localization and uh, stereognosis are a couple of good ones to use. Stereognosis, for the fine folks at home, you want to explain yeah. that? Yes. Thanks for reminding me that I'm talking to the fine folks at home. It's when you can identify something by touch, an object by touch without looking at it. So that's the sensation where it, the trick, you can reach into your pocket or your purse and pull out a quarter because that's what you want just based on touch. Um, then she recommends some different secondary outcome assessments. So like to test coordination, use the nine-hole peg test or the box and blocks test. We can look at pitch, pinch and grip strength and then some ADL and IADL tasks as well. Is this sort of like backing into sensation by mm -hmm. assuming that the more box... So the box and block is one where you have these, I think the one centimeter by one centimeter blocks and you have to bring them over a border and drop them on the other side. And it, I always love that outcome measure because I don't have to work during that. As long as you know, they do it right and they don't cheat. I just got to count the blocks at, at the end of a minute. I always love that one. Every other outcome measure was just such a hassle, but that one was easy. But she's saying that so if you what wanna... we're saying, if you're mm -hmm. moving better, you're feeling better. Yeah. And you can use like that. You can look at coordination. So you can work a little bit while you give that assessment and kind of look at the quality of the movement that the person is um, providing. And you can talk about that in your documentation. And I guess that's helpful if the same person assesses time after time or everybody who is using that assessment kind of thinks about it the same way. Otherwise, you're going to get some different or lacking information. Are you suggesting apples to apples measurements clinically? I, I, I am. Get right out. I am not kidding about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, she goes into some adaptive adaptive and compensatory techniques. But then she starts talking about the remediation and pretty much what you have in your book. So active sensory training and passive sensory training. So do you want to talk about those two interventions? I would like to. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's the way I look at it. There's sort of these passive things that can be done and there's active things that are done and passive, it just kind of happens to them over and over again, and they try to feel it. And when yeah. they can feel it, you turn it down and make it harder to feel. And then when they can feel that, you make it even, it's basically repetitive 
and challenging, but the challenging is sort of counterintuitive. You turn it down, you make it less, so they have to feel it a little bit more. And people talk about this with things like um, becoming really good at understanding quality wines. So Mm -hmm. is a wine a good wine or a bad wine? You can develop that palate. It's kind of like that where you make it more and more subtle over time and you can get really good at it. So the classic passive way of doing it is our old friend Eastim. And with Eastim, typically what you want to do first is make sure that it's safe, right? And there's a lot of contraindications for Eastim and precautions. A classic one is a pacemaker. You probably want to stay away from doing Eastim on somebody who has a pacemaker because it could interfere. I've never heard of it. And some people think it's perfectly safe because if you're at the arm, it's not going to, or the gas rock in the leg, you're not going to hit anything. But be that as it may, this should be done under the care of a therapist, at least initially. And what you do is, and I'm going to make this simple and say that you have somebody with a brain injury, but they have a less affected side and a more affected side. So you try to find some place on the less affected side, the better side, and you put the electrodes on there and you say, okay, um, I'm going to turn this up slowly, this E-STEM. And this is all going to be what therapists would recognize as TENS. It's not, it, there's not going to be any muscle contraction here. I'm going to turn this up as soon as you can feel it. Let me know. And usually about five milliamps for you or I, we probably feel it's starting about five milliamps. Okay. And you say, okay, you, do you feel that? It's very subtle, isn't it? Yes, it's very subtle. I, I, I can barely feel that. That's good. Because that's the first feeling you're going to get on the affected side. Okay, now I'm going to do something kind of mean to Mr. Smith. I'm going to turn it up to 15 milliamps, way above what you can feel. Okay, we're at 15 milliamps. Now, how does that feel? Is that horrible? Is it noxious? Do you hate it? He goes, you know, I'm okay with it. I can feel it. It's strong, but I'm okay with that. If, if it, this is part of the treatment, okay. So now we've established that 15 milliamps is probably okay on the affected side. So- um, now you put it on the affected side and you put it at 15 milliamps. Okay. You just observe the person, make sure they're okay. Make sure there's no muscle contraction. You don't want them to get delayed on set muscle soreness because you turned it up too loud. The dosages are sort of all over the place. The training durations range from one, two hour session to 30 minutes applied each day, five days a week for eight weeks. That 30 minutes sounds more reasonable to me, but the, you and the clinician can get together and figure out you know, what that should be. Now, as soon as you... As soon as you start to feel that tap, tap, tap that you felt on the less affected side, and it starts to, you start to feel it on the affected side, that's when you have to add challenge. As I mentioned before, the way you would add challenge is by turning it down. So you go sub threshold. You know, what's, tell me when you can't feel it. So you're at 15, he can feel that. 14, I can still kind of feel that. 13, I think I can feel that too. 12, I don't feel anything. Did you turn it off? So you know, 12 is probably a good one, but maybe bring it down to 11. And then he sits there quietly and tries to focus on this feeling of the tap, tap, tap. And then you hope that it goes down to you know seven and then down to five and that's what you're hoping for it's a passive way of doing it so do you start with that 15 as per your example and you you let them feel that for some time or you want to just start going down right away i would go down right away okay it just Sorry, I might not have been paying attention. No, no, you were. I mean, it's a good question. Maybe you want to leave it on there at that 15 and have them have some successes. But just like constraint-induced therapy or, you know, ballroom dancing or 
wait, what did you do? Swing dancing or swing dancing. You always want to challenge yourself. And so you would bring it down. But here's the good news. You would encourage them. to. That's great that you can feel it. Wow, that changes everything. So we're, we're headed in the right direction. Okay, and give them some successes and let them feel it and then start to turn it down. So are you going to use, like, is the clinic going to buy these TENS units and use them during therapy? Or are we going to encourage people to purchase their own for their home program? I'll tell you what. So it's a double-edged sword here because I do have some very, inex- the, the pressure from China to bring the cost of this stuff down has been immense. And on Amazon, you can find really good machines for redunculously little, but we do, I mean, do you think it, I don't even want to say what's our liability here, but what should our concerns as, as clinicians be with regard to suggesting an eSIM unit? I mean, I would go through my therapist if I was them. Well, yeah. And I do know therapists who investigate units and then they will make a recommendation because people are going to buy those things. Some people are just going to do what they're going to do. So to me, it makes sense as the clinician to do your investigating, find something that's good, and then use your clinical reasoning skills to know, is your is your person, is your survivor going to be able to manage this properly? Is a caregiver needed? All of that stuff, I would think. Because if we want people to do this as a home program, then we have to set them up so they can. Am I thinking about that the right way or am I way off here? No, I think you're right. It's just reminding me of a, of a little weirdness about occupational therapy, where in some states, and because I used to do my talk in, in many states, occupational therapists aren't allowed to do e-STEM unless they have this special certification. Yeah, is certain York, states are. Is New York's not like that, is it? No, you have to demonstrate competency. So we do have, um, we have an ethical obligation to know what we're doing. So we should learn from someone who knows what they're doing. Have you gone through that? Of course you have. I have not gone through any training. I had to um, I had to fill in. When I was a float therapist, I had to fill in the neuro outpatient for an extended time. And I wasn't competent in those things, but the PTs helped me. So I always made sure to ask. I, I always ask. And I think that we should ask for help if we're not clear on what to do. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, yeah. I know, I know some people are a little intimidated, but you you have to reach just reach a comfort level with your own self, know what your abilities are, and then recognize these are opportunities for learning. And I worked with great people. It was a really good team. That helps. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So I, I just thought it was sort of funny. You know, they sell Eastim at the mall, you know, and the guy chases you down here. You want to try this? Like a, it's like a massage, you know, and an OT could walk by and go, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm an OT. You know, I think there's some PTs behind me. I think they could do it. You know, you got the guy with the Eastim abysizer that there, and that guy's drunk on his back porch and he can do it, but OTs can't. I just think mm-hmm. it's a little ridiculous. Well, there's yeah. some interesting dynamics in the therapy world with people thinking that occupational therapists are not educated, but then sometimes we as OTs act a little afraid and are overcautious with things as well. Hmm. Interesting. I, I don't know. Okay, let's not get into the politics here. No. It gets sticky. It's, yeah. Um, so anyway, so I will put some links for some less expensive Easton machines. Talk to your clinician, talk to your therapist, and come up with a good plan. Not just what machine, but what should the dosage be? What am I looking out for? Can I do it at home and, and stay safe? 
again, that I think that that's an important part of the therapy process is setting people up for successful continuation of their recovery in a safe way. Yeah, absolutely. And there are other passive ways of doing it. Pneumatic compression. You know, those intermittent pneumatic compression, like they fill up with air and they squeeze blood, usually from the lower extremities back towards the heart. The way that blood heads in the right direction is there's valves that only go one way and it lets the blood go back up towards the heart, be reoxygenated in the lungs. And sometimes those valves break and they get, um, wait a second, I'm going to think of it, chronic venous insufficiency. I was involved in a clinical trial in this. I should remember this. And um, and so they have these pumps that pump blood back up towards the heart. Okay. So, so are you talking about the ones like they use in hospitals? Right. Okay. Exactly. So you would use something like that to squeeze into you and then relax and squeeze into you. And then again, you would try to feel that. So that could be something that could be repetitive practice for sensation recovery, more deep pressure than tactile, but okay. Then there's massage and self-massage. So a lot of times when somebody has a, a stronger side and a weaker side, you'll see the stronger side massaging the weaker side. And they're doing that for a reason. They're trying to get the sensation back. And the the good news here is that if you're getting a masseuse to do it or somebody to do it for you, you got to go to them. But if you do it for yourself, you can throw a lot of repetitive sensory stuff into that affected side and you don't have to pay anybody. It sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any contraindications for self-massage. There's a joke in there some way, but I'm going to move on. Okay, and then uh, vibration has also been used. And I know you've talked about vibration. I've taken a sneak peek at the EBRSR with regard to vibration. And there may be some there there that I didn't think was there, but this is Mm. for just like a vibrator that's used on the skin to kind of get that feeling back. One of the things that you have in your book that I know we used to do when we were kids is um, drawing, you know how when you draw pictures on somebody's back and they have to decide what it is? Yeah. That's a game. Make a game out of it. Absolutely. So we have two categories. We have passive and all those ones I just mentioned. And then there's the active protocols. It involves a series of exercises designed specifically to train sensory function. And it's, again, based in repetitive practice. They fall around three general kinds of protocols. Texture discrimination. You know, for OTs, this is like, you know that they're, they're going to do the, a lot of this kind of stuff. Limb position sense. That's proprioception. Tactile object recognition. And that is that word that you used before, stereo something. Oh, stereognosis. So that's tactile object recognition. So can you tell the difference between a dime and a quarter? Or can you tell the difference between a quarter and, I don't know. A a, pencil? A pencil, exactly. I mean, it can be that profound sometimes, the loss.
Key. We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at neurons. At neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. That's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. give you a good example of one of these tests. So the person is blindfolded or their eyes are closed and the helper touches the survivor lightly on some part of their affected side. So let's mm. say you touch them on the palm of the of the weaker side, of the less sensate side, and then with their good hand, they try to touch themselves on the same place. But of course, their eyes are closed, so they don't have the eyes to back them up. They have to do it basically only on tactile sensation. And that could also be used as an outcome measure. Basically, you measure the distance from the point where they touch and you see over time whether they're getting closer and closer to the target. And so if you're a caregiver, that's a game that you can play. You have them 
try to touch the spot that you touched. And maybe you use an anatomical marker, something on the palm, for instance, where this crease meets that crease. And then you have them touch and then you measure the distance. Maybe you have them touch and then you put a little pen marker there. And then you measure from where they touched to where you touch them. And that measurement, you hope it gets closer and closer over time. And then graphesthesia, that's the that one that you were kind of talking about, it's the one where you draw a shape on them and then they have to tell you what shape it was that you drew on them. Um, proprioception, the helper places and holds the, the affected side in some position. And then the survivor with the less affected side tries to match it. Clinicians, that's a good test of proprioception. So you have them close their eyes. Of course, these are all blindfolded and you have you move their affected side into some unusual position and you hold it there. And then with their less affected side, they try to match it and see if they come up with the same position. And often they don't. But if you do this enough, they might be able to replicate it better. It's repetitive practice of proprioception. And then um, you can do the same kind of thing, but with movement. The last one was static. You just hold it there. But then the next one is movement. So the helper moves the bad side in some way, and then they try to match it. And you can do it in real time with their affected side. What do you think about those? Do you think those are something that maybe a caregiver could do? Absolutely. It's a simple intervention. You know, it's, it, it's simple and hopefully effective. Some of those things, it just sounds like you could make a game out of it, especially with the objects, the drawing. It's more fun to do stuff if it's a game. That's right. So grandkids of the world, step up. That's Go to your grandma great. that has the affected side and start drawing stuff on her palm and see if she can figure out what you're trying to do. It's a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and you could do this sort of offline in a much more casual way. You know, give yourself, if you are a person with brain injury, give yourself a chance to feel different textures. You can have your hand take the shape of the object and see if you can kind of feel and then feel it with the less affected side. Why why do these feel different to me? And then maybe your brain can reconcile that through repetitive practice. What do you think about using vision to kind of get started with it? So really looking at the object while you're holding it in your affected hand and get that visual image and then close your eyes and just see, does it feel like what it looked like? And and try to envision that feeling. I mean, typically we want to close the eyes, but sometimes maybe you do want to get a like wait, I know what that feels like because I can see it's like a one of those, what are those fruits with like the pricklies on it? It's one of those prickly fruits. I know yeah. what that should feel like and and then it doesn't, but maybe it does. Yeah. Maybe, it can, maybe that's the way it feels to me now. And as I do it more and more, uh, I can feel it closer to what the visual cortex is telling me. Well, it's something that I think about that we, we do in occupational therapy is we grade activities. We grade them up and down. And so, if a person's really struggling, then maybe getting that visual input would be a good starting place. I think so. Now, some of these treatment options are done blindfolded, right? So, you mm-hmm. would perform a common functional activity with the eyes closed to heighten the sensory part of the task. Do you remember the, um, whatchamacallit? It was the superhero that couldn't see. Uh, he was thrown into a vat of scalding radioactive material. It's the, is it the f- it's not the flash. I should call my son in here. He would know. You really should because I'm just not really big on superheroes beyond Wonder Woman. <laughs> so 
he loses his eyesight, but that means all of the rest of his senses are heightened. And that's the idea behind getting rid of the eyes and having to hyperfeel through um, through the usually the hand. And the hand is ginormous in, in the brain. So that's a good thing to do. You, this doesn't mean you couldn't do it at the foot or the leg or wherever they have sensory loss. You could play games, do fine motor activities, um, IADLs, which are instrumental activities of daily living. Boom. Well, how you like me now, Deb? You graduated, Pete. Old dogs, new tricks. <laughs> so um, you can do fine motor activities with the eyes closed to force you to feel the shape that you need to, to play dominoes, dice, pick up sticks, scrabble, solitaire, braille Ooh, cards. I've got a game. What, what's Perfection. Your game? Remember that game, Perfection? I do not. <sighs> it's a little uh, box and it has all these different shapes in it. And you, they have little pegs, but you could feel the bottom of the shape. Just use the shapes from perfection because the way that you play the game is it has a timer and you have to get all of the pieces in. So you wouldn't play it the correct way, but feel those shapes and see if you could uh, figure out what they are. It's almost like a game made for these people. Mm -hmm. It is. Perfection. What do you think? Perfection. It should be called sensory perfection. That'd be a cool game. Maybe maybe somebody will make it now that you suggested it. You need to market that. Yep. Yep. Add it to the list. Now, I have an article that I'm going to put on the show notes, and they did these this kind of work where they did lots of repetitions with people that had pure sensory stroke. So they could move. They couldn't feel a darn thing. And that makes sense because some parts of the brain are really good at feeling and if they're gone, it's kind of gone. And what they found was when they did these kinds of exercise that we're talking about, they had increases in sensation and increased use of the affected arm during daily life, a reversal of learned non-use, if you will, and it was stable over a six-month period. So that's good news. That's great news. Um, in the show notes. What do you think about doing some proprioceptive activities for people who do have some movement abilities? So like um, picking up, maybe filling a paper cup up with some water. You know how some paper cups are kind of flimsy, finding something flimsy so that your body has to make that adjustment. Hmm. What do you think about something like that? I think that'd be great. Would you be able to get enough repetitions in would be because we're talking about you know, a lot of repetitions to drive cortical change. You just have to set your mind to it that you're going to work on that for a time. You so could build that into a constraint induced therapy program, a modified program. So you're doing like Dixie cup stuff. Yeah. Cup is kind of flimsy to begin with. I don't mean to disparage Dixie cups, but they I know, but you know those bathroom cups, they don't really hold their water. They're terrible. Oh, okay. Those will be good to start with. Okay, because it's very sensitive to being crushed. Yeah. And so now you got to be hypersensitive to not crushing stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course, that does incorporate vision, but proprioception is really an unconscious sense. So if you're using vision just to get started, I don't think that's wrong. And certainly in constraint-induced therapy, if we're claiming that a lot of repetitions in constraint-induced therapy is going to increase proprioception sensory, then certainly their eyes are not blindfolded. Exactly. It's just they have an oven mitt on their affected side. So yeah, I'm all in with that. Awesome. Here's another thing that you can do, weight discrimination. They are blindfolded in this one and you hand them a weight. Say, okay, got a feel for that? Maybe it's a two-pound weight. 
then you give them a one pound weight and you say, is that heavier or lighter than the last one? And then you kind of figure, you know, kind of fake them out and you put the two pound back in there. Is that lighter or heavier? Wait, isn't that the same one? Ooh, very good. Then you give them a heavier one. So weight discrimination, then tactile discrimination. They're again, they're blindfolded or they, you know, their eyes can be closed. I do a lot of, I still do a lot of this kind of testing in the clinic. Can you tell the difference between something that's really rough or just mildly rough or smooth like rubber or cloth or paper? Can you tell the difference between those three? And then if they can tell between paper and sandpaper, then you bring them closer together, maybe rubber and paper or cloth and sandpaper. Can they discriminate between those two? Could you do that with temperature too then? Warm and cold. Yes, you could. And that's another thing that we test. Yeah. So you take two little flimsy cups and you put one in the microwave for 15 seconds. One's cool and one's warm. You can do it that way. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Then there's object recognition. Can they, if you drop something in their hand, can they tell the difference between a key and a quarter or a stone and a bunch of rice? And you just make it more difficult over time. I said that backwards, but you get the idea. You, you do things that are very disparate and then very close to each other. Yeah. So like a rice bin or um, dry beans or something like that, and then put objects in the bins with those and having them locate those items. That's a little bit of a derivation, um, but yeah, that kind of Would thing. Would that work? I think I mean, so. Yeah. Why not? So your hand is going through, it's beans, 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 but wait, what is this thing? That doesn't feel like the others. Maybe that's the thing that you know, crazy Deb wants me to try to fish out of this thing. Maybe. I didn't mean to call you crazy. You're not crazy. I mean, a little bit crazy. But you know how you think your therapist is crazy because they're making you do these crazy things. Well, yeah. Here's another one. Show somebody something on the shelf, then they're blindfolded and they have to target to that thing on the shelf. Ooh. Now, it might be tough with a hemiparetic limb, but you could put it really close to them. The thing is, can they target without their eyesight? And you do that repetitively. That sounds hard. Yeah. Maybe we should try it with ourselves first. Okay. I see <laughs> that cup right there. This could go south. I'm going to do an experiment. Can I hit that cup right there? Let's see. Eyes are closed. Ah, I'm still alive. Well done. He Too got it, it's folks. Not beer. Okay. And the next one, and I think this might be the last suggestion I have, is item grouping. So you get a box and you put a bunch of different items in it. And then they have to, in the four quadrants of the box, put the different, so all the quarters go over there and all the little blocks go over here and all the little pegs. And, and so you have to work to group the items in the four different quadrants of the box. Wait, can you say that again? So you have a box and you just scatter in four different kinds of things and they have to decide which corner of the box they want to put this thing or that, that kind of thing. The coins go over here and the pegs go over there. And the, I don't know. So you put, you put multiple similar items in groups of multiple similar items and they have to separate them. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah. It's a game. It is a game. The Nottingham Sensory Assessment is the one I'm going to put online. So it, do, it goes through a series of things. And at least you can have an apples to apples comparison over time to see if you are actually getting better at this stuff. But I think you would agree a lot of the stuff that I just talked about can be done at home with a caregiver. Absolutely. And that um, was making me just think that for some of some of these things, you could make a sensory kit and give it to somebody. So what's your kit look like? First of all, can it be in a lunchbox? So it could be like one of those old 60s lunchboxes? It could. Some people like caboodles types of things, but I like those old 
lunch boxes. So maybe for smaller items for your lunch box and maybe a caboodle for some of the larger items, you know, balls and pegs and things like that. Um, okay, and keep it all in me. one spot. What's a caboodle? It's, no, it's a, oh, just a caboodle. I kind of get yeah, it. They're plastic containers that people like to buy to buy, store stuff in. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can put, you can have separate kits or you can have one larger box storage bin and put your little mini kits in there, keep everything handy, and then you're more likely to do it. That's, that's how I think about things because if I have to go around gathering stuff and putting it away every day, it is not going to happen. Ain't nobody got time for that. No. And clinicians could make kits for themselves to save their own time. So they're not running around the clinic trying to find a bunch of items to use for something like that. True that. So question for you, what do you think about mirror therapy for improving sensation? It's kind of questionable in the literature. Is it? Do tell. Well, let me find this. So I found this, it's an older article and the mirror therapy group performed better in the overall and distal part of the Fugelmeyer, they demonstrated shorter reaction times and greater maximum shoulder elbow cross correlation, whatever that means. And the revised Nottingham sensory assessment temp scores improved more in the mirror therapy group than in the control group. So I think some of the assessment tools make a difference if they're more sensitive to picking up changes in function. So in in that article, they used the Nottingham sensory assessment that we're going to post, and they found with mirror therapy that they got increased sensation? Significantly more in the mirror therapy group than in the control group. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's good news. Keep your eye on kids. Kids, keep your eye out for mirror therapy with regard to sensation recovery. It may be of some benefit. Yeah. Now, we are going to do an episode on what works. And during that, we might find something, some little nibble with regard to mirror therapy and sensation recovery. Yeah. Something that I found interesting, I found an article from 2019. It was a meta-analysis. And it seems like there's more research needed for the active sensory training. So if people are looking for research projects, that would be a good place to start because more research is needed. Are you going to put that meta on the show notes? Yes. Because I think I'm going to want to look at that one. Yeah. So I got some clinical bottom lines with regard to sensation. I think you and I agree, and I think the world should agree, sensation profoundly impacts motor. So sensation impacts movement. Sensation may be able to be retrained. We think it is. Try some of the techniques that we talked about today. That may help. Motor and sensory cortical regions affect each other. If one goes down, the other tends to go down. Learn non-use among many other reasons. Sensation, I think you would agree, is way under-tested and under-treated, and retrained sensation may very well affect movement, so don't ignore it. Yeah, don't ignore it. listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, 
please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.